All right, let's turn to Romans chapter 1 and 16 again. Romans 1 and one six and also 16, as I've been calling it, and we'll just have a prayer in a moment, but there is what is known as a pincer movement in military strategy and tactics, not P-I-N-C-H-E-R, but pincer. This was used very effectively at a place called Cannae when the Romans were, Roman legions were wiped out completely by Hannibal and his forces and from North Africa. And the pincer movement comes in like this from this side, comes in like this from this side, two flanks, and they hit the center very effectively. That's called a pincer movement. The Germans used it successfully in their both world wars, I believe. And it's been used throughout military history. Now, the reason I mention pincer movement is because I'm kind of beginning with that for Romans. Instead of starting from the back and going to the front, or the front and going to the back, kind of starting from the front and the back and doing a pincer movement toward the center. Now, I don't know if that's going to last until the duration of Romans, but it's something we're at least starting with. And so keep that in mind. So that's one of the reasons why I'm going Romans 1 and Romans 16. There's a strategy there. So let's take a couple moments, silent preparation. Father, we thank you for the privilege of gathering together. We pray that you, through the word and the spirit, that you will elevate souls and spirits of all who are present here, that you will cause health to enter into the heart of our being because you send your word to heal, according to Psalm 107.20. Grant us the grace for total concentration that we might benefit to the maximum from this meeting and that we might redeem the time, especially in these days. We ask these things and give you thanks in Christ's name. Amen. First Romans 1. This is again my translation. Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus. Very important that we retain that powerful word, slave, not just servant. Effectively summoned, this is my translation, effectively summoned to be an apostle. Set apart and limited to the task. Here we have a word that's used twice right at the get-go of Romans. Set apart and limited, both set apart and limited. And it's the word in the Greek that is a complex word. It's ap plus horizo, where we get our word horizon, and there's, so we have aphorizo. It's used here for Paul being set apart and limited, and it's used in Romans 1.4 for Jesus Christ being set apart and limited in the fact that he is distinctly and uniquely God's divine son, demonstrated by the resurrection from the dead. So we have, again, the word horizon here, which will, I think, 
figure rather prominently in our interpretation of Romans. There are ten, what I call, rather nine, there will be ten maybe, theological functional specialties that we use both for John's Gospel and Book of Revelation. And the ninth one is horizons. We're considering the term horizons as a theological functional specialty in interpreting Romans. Romans, of course, deals with a universal horizon of redemption. And if we don't see that, then we're not seeing Romans in the proper light. So this this word is very key, and it's a catchword right at the beginning. So a slave of Jesus Christ, effectively summoned to be an apostle, set apart and limited to the task of preaching the gospel of God. Please note that he's not only set apart to this task, but that he's also limited to this task. He's not a man for all seasons. He's not a Renaissance man. He's a preacher of the gospel. The preacher of the gospel is limited to that task. And so when someone aspires to that vocation, they ought to know that from the get-go. Verse 2, which God promised, this gospel of God, good news that is uttered by God himself, which God promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy writings. So we want you to understand and see Christ Jesus. I have that in the notes that will be on the website, Christ Jesus. And then we have the gospel of God in verse 1. We have then promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy writings. That's what we would call the Old Testament. Verse 3, this gospel, and this also takes in the holy writings themselves, the whole Old Testament, this gospel and the holy writings themselves or the whole Old Testament are all about his son, meaning God's son, who is from the seed of David, According to the flesh, tricky word there, flesh, sarks in the Greek, because sometimes it simply refers to the human body or the humanity, the genealogical hereditary humanity of people. But in many cases, in Paul's writings, especially flesh is a power that holds people in slavery. It's the flesh. It's a power that is impossible for human beings to overcome And can only be overcome by the Spirit, capital S, Spirit, the Holy Spirit, in the Christian life. This is something that's very meaningful in Romans. This gospel then, and the holy writings themselves, are all about his son, who is from the seed of David according to, let's say, hereditary heritage here. Designated as the Son of God according to the Spirit of Sanctification. The spirit of holiness, we could say, by the resurrection from the dead. That's the resurrection from the dead of Jesus Christ. Now, we're going to look at this passage again in a moment. Through whom, says verse 5, we received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience that is faith. Not the obedience of faith, but the obedience that is faith. Please note that faith is brought about by the gospel. Faith comes about. It's brought about by the message. And by the message, we mean the message about Christ in Romans 10, 17. Faith is brought about. It's not a gospel preached to you where you're left to make a decision and a choice. 
It's the gospel brings about faith. So through whom we receive grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience that is faith by all the nations. I translated that because that's ultimately what's going to be the experience of all the nations faith by all the nations or faithfulness by all the nations for the sake of his name. We could say among all the nations, but it ultimately refers to that obedience of faith will be by all the nations for the sake of his name. Now there's a, an elided phrase here, E L E I D E D new vocabulary word elided. That means eliminated or Passed over. In our translation so far, and this is our fifth lesson in Romans, in our translation of Romans 1, 1 to 5, maybe you've already done it. We've detect, we should detect an elided phrase, a phrase that I eliminated. In verse 4, we've, we have designated as the Son of God according to the spirit of sanctification by the resurrection from the dead. What's missing is the significant phrase, with power. I don't know if I got you on that. I got myself on it, really. And duname, in Romans 1.4, with power. And so that's a phrase that we elided, but now add in where it should be, with power. So designated as the Son of God with power, according to the spirit of sanctification, by the resurrection from the dead. So by first eliding this phrase, or eliminating it, and then emphatically adding it in, our attention is directed to a key word in Romans, and that's dunamis. D-U-N-A-M-I-S in the Greek. Dunamis. A key word because Romans accentuates, as does the gospel, the power of God and not of man. It, it reveals the omnipotent power of God and the radical incapacity of humanity. It reveals God's action in Christ. Divine action, not human action. Divine action, the action of God in Christ for man is salvation. And so it's a key phrase. It's a key word, and it's found in its noun form in 1-4. But keeping with the pincer movement, the strategy of, at least in the introductory part of Romans, teaching Romans, we have the same, a similar word, only in the adjective form in Romans 16-25. In Romans 16-25, now to him who has the power... To him that has the power, that's dunamis, the one who has the power. Now let's see how this becomes very significant for the teaching of Romans. So this key word found in its noun form in 1-4 appears in an adjectival form in Romans 16-25. And this, what this does to me is it strengthens the inclusio. It makes it really clear that there is a bracket around Romans that saying something in the beginning of a monograph or a writing and saying something at the end of a monograph or a writing is what is known as an inclusio. It, it kind of brackets the whole thing. 
and gives us a key to interpretation of what it's all about. That's extremely important here. And this is going to overcome a lot of doubts that people have about this last passage in Romans 16, 25. So we have in Enduname in Romans 1, 4, finds a mate in this word, to, D-O, which is an article, and then duna meno, to duna meno, that's the one with the power, the one with the power, the one who has the power, the only one who has the omnipotent power, finds a mate in this word in 1625. What's being strengthened here is the outer flanks of Romans, and therefore the pincer movement is being established. Now this does continue throughout Romans 1, 1, 5 through 7, and then Romans 16, verses 1 through probably 23 also, as we might look at that in the near future, maybe even tomorrow night. So then, the one who by his power designated Jesus Christ as the Son of God according to the spirit of sanctification, is the same one who has the power to strengthen the readers of Romans. That includes you in the 21st century. This was designed in the fact that the postscript of Romans 16:25 to 27 is more than a postscript. It's a summation of Romans. And what it does is it opens up this epistle to be read everywhere by churches everywhere throughout this present age. And that includes us. So there's a very timely, very relevant, very pertinent, very pointed message for the church in the 21st century in Romans. Very important. So the power of God was exercised in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The power of God was exercised most notably and with a kind of finality and with a kind of definitive finality in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. There will be a resurrection of the dead in the parousia, the coming of Christ, the second coming as it's often called. But Christ is the first fruits. So please notice that the power of God was exercised in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and that the same power is exercised to strengthen. The word sterizo means to establish and to strengthen. What we need is to be established in this unchained gospel, to be established in this gospel to be firmly established in it, especially given the escalation that's occurring now of perilous times. So this same power that raised Jesus from the dead is exercised now to establish you by Paul's gospel. So this is part of the inclusio the segments that bracket this epistle in its totality. Now let's read Romans 1, 1 through 5 again, and then Romans 16, 25 to 27. Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus. He uses the term Christ first, then Jesus. 
effectively summoned to be an apostle, set apart and limited to the task of preaching the gospel of God. Please note that phrase, the gospel of God, because it finds a mate in the last paragraph, which God promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy writings. This gospel, please notice that phrase, through his prophets in the holy writings. This gospel and the sacred writings, that's my translation, are all about his son was from the seed of David according to hereditary lineage, designated as the Son of God with power. Please note that phrase. That's our catchphrase for the night, with power, according to the spirit of sanctification by the resurrection from the dead. Verse 5, through whom we received, Paul speaking of himself and other apostles, some males, some females, as we'll find from Romans 16 possibility that Junius or Junia is a female apostle will come up and we'll see what that means. So we have received, there's a sense where this is universalized in the church. Romans is all about, I saw a bumper sticker one time, I think it was a hippie's car. So it was like think globally, but act locally. Well, I thought of that today and that that's kind of a hippie thing, but I thought of it today in Romans. Romans actually is a depiction of Paul thinking globally or universally to solve a particular problem of disunity in the church in Rome. He thinks globally. He has a universal horizon, which he applies to local biases that have split and fragmented the church. And the church is headed for some rough water And if you understand the rough water that the church is headed for, you're not going to freak out when it happens because God has ordained the church to experience the same shattering as his son experienced on the cross leading to resurrection and life. So whatever the church goes through, and it is to the celebration of non-Christians, those non-Christians will not be celebrating too long. Because there is this thing called resurrection, the power of God exercised in his people now. And so look at Romans 16 now. Look at the matching, look at the mates in this pincer movement on these two flanks. Now to him who has the power, that has the mate with the word in power, to strengthen you by my gospel. Now God's gospel is Paul's gospel. Because Paul appropriated that gospel. That gospel can be your gospel. Once you appropriate it and have the firm conviction of it and are established in it, it becomes your gospel. And you can preach it with effect and live it with impact. And that's the whole point of this. The effect of Romans on the individual lives of people. People want to know what to do, what should we do, and how shall we live? And they fail to recognize that that question is answered all the way through Romans, whether it's in the so-called doctrinal or the so-called ethical. Everything in Romans causes you to live. Everything in Romans answers the question, what do we do now? So that you don't have to ask that question, what do we do now? You find yourself doing it as the power of God exercises itself in you. So now to him that has the power, has the mate in with power in Romans 1, by my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, this is probably the most notable phrase in all of Romans, the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the apocalypse, 
That's the revelation of a secret or the mystery. According to the apocalypse or the revelation of a mystery kept silent for ages of time gone by, but now, verse 26, is manifested, here's again something we see in the first paragraph, by the writings or in the writings, through the writings of the prophets. There it is again. And made known to all the nations. There it is again, all the nations. By command of the eternal God. What is the command of the eternal God? It's simply life. It is simply life. And what Paul is after is what Psalm 133 says. How blessed is the gathering or the living, the residing together of God's people in unity. It is where God commands a blessing, which is life forevermore, or life, the life of the coming age now. How good and how pleasant it is for the brethren to dwell together in unity. And what's happening in Rome is not a dwelling together in unity. By God's command, that will occur. By God's command, Yahweh speaks peace to his people, speaks unity into a fragmented church. That's another purpose of Romans. But let's continue. Is now manifested through the writings of the prophets, made known to all the nations by command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience that is faith. There it is again, the obedience that is faith. And then verse 27, to the only wise God... Through Jesus Christ, be glory for the ages to come. Sounds a lot like 2 Peter 3.18, doesn't it? And there's a reason for that. It sounds a lot like, and yes, I haven't forgotten that we're going to bring the pastoral epistles into, to bear on the interpretation of Romans because they're exceedingly important and they're elided from commentaries. And they shouldn't be. But the power that is specified in the phrases with power is divine power. It is the power of God. The supreme display of the power of God once was his deliverance of the slave race. Please notice that. A slave race called Israel, the sons of Israel, he delivered them from slavery in Egypt through the splitting of the Red Sea. God, by his power, delivered the sons of Israel as a slave race in Egypt who could never deliver themselves by their own power. The powers that dominated them were too great for them, as Jeremiah 31, 11 will say in one of our upcoming teachings. But now, the standard of God's power is not the Red Sea. It is now the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, which is the beginning of a universal exodus. Because it seems that all creation is waiting for its exodus, its liberation from slavery to corruption. This divine power is not just a force of nature. You hear somebody say, well, that person, she, or she comes into the room, she's a force of nature. That ain't no big deal compared to the power of God. 
a force of nature. We've seen the force of nature move in various hurricanes in this past few months. We see it in tornadic action. We see it in a, a rumbling volcano that's occurring. Now there's a, a force of nature. But divine power is not just a force of nature like that of a Category 5 hurricane. Nor is it like the might behind a political dictator or a belligerent army. These are concerted powers according to nature or according to man or according to man's technology. Force was brought to bear by the Caesar of Rome, for example, and this is important in Romans. Force was brought to bear by the Caesar of Rome or by his legions that were at his command that is according to the spirit of unholy animal might and power. See what I'm talking about here? Power according to the spirit of holiness versus might and power according to the spirit of very unholy animalistic power, militaristic power, technological power, human brute force or the force of nature. So we're not talking about any of those forces. In fact, in Daniel 7-7, Daniel in his apocalyptic vision shows that force was brought to bear by the Caesar of Rome or by his legions according to the spirit of unholy animal might. It was a beast in power. The fourth beast, which Daniel says, I saw it, and it was frightening and dreadful and unbelievably strong, which, quote, devoured and crushed, devoured and crushed and trampled. It devoured and it crushed, and then it trampled underfoot what was left. Daniel 7, 7. That power was exercised by a beast. It was a force of bestial power, brute force. But the power that was exercised in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead was according to the spirit of holiness. According to the spirit of holiness. Oh, he crushed and he destroyed, all right, death and sin. And trampled underfoot what was left behind, which is Adamic ontology, or the flesh, ruling people. So the power that was exercised in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead was according to the spirit of holiness, that is, sanctification. It was and is a power unto sanctification. It was and is a power unto life and not death. Salvation and not destruction. Transformation and liberation. It was not the power and might that human beings are used to when they think of power or force or might. And I know some of you are probably thinking this very thought. It is not by this kind of power or might, says Yahweh, but by my spirit. God's power is always exerted, always put forth, always brought to bear according to the spirit 
and according to holiness. According to the Holy Spirit, that is. God's power is what raised Jesus from the dead. God's power is what sanctified and set him apart as the messianic king and declared him to be the son of God with power means declared him to be the ascendant king and co-regent of God, the king of kings and lord of lords. He's even the lord of that lord, small l, called Thanatos, or death. Once death was a lord, but now the lord, risen from the dead, is the lord of lords, including death. Once sin reigned, once sin reigned as a lord, as a king, but now the king of kings is Jesus Christ. God's power is always exerted according to the spirit of holiness. God's power is what sanctifies us. Exerts itself on our behalf. That is in us to the glory of God. Whenever someone talks about Christian freedom and it's not according to the spirit of holiness, you know that's not Christian freedom. That's the radical independence of an Adamic ontology claiming the title of Christian. It's not true freedom. True freedom is also expounded in Romans, something we're not used to. God's power is the power of rectifying life. And it's the power of that which men call the Christian life. We call it the Christian life. But what do we mean by the Christian life? The power of God is the power of the true Christian life. God's power, according to the spirit of holiness, raised Jesus from the dead. God's power, according to the spirit of holiness, will raise all human beings from the dead or raise all the dead and will gloriously transform all of creation. That's the unchained gospel. God's power, according to the spirit of holiness, is the power of salvation. God's power is his omnipotent ability to strengthen us in life, especially at the point of our most hurtful weakness. This last statement, God's power is the omnipotent ability to strengthen us in life and in sanctification and in sanctification, holiness. This last statement is particularly relevant in Romans 6. Romans 6, especially in verse 19, where Paul, the slave of Jesus Christ, urges the saints in Rome and everywhere else, including in New Kensington in the 21st century, 
to, quote, offer the members of your body as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. Paul holds a lot of catchwords together throughout this entire epistle. And then he said, as you once offered them as slaves of impurity, resulting in greater and greater lawlessness. Once your bodies were available to impurity, resulting in greater and greater lawlessness. Now, the members of your body, or the total totality of your body, slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. Now, the concepts of power and slavery come significantly into play in Romans. Back then, there was a huge population of slaves, mostly through military conquest. And so Rome was all about power. The power over your slaves of your household was an, they would call it an absolute power. Someone would say it's the power of life and death, but I would say, no, it's just the power of death. Only God has the power of life. So the concepts of power and slavery come significantly into play in Romans. It starts right off at the very beginning, right off the blocks. Paul, a slave. Could they relate to that in Rome? Oh, yeah, you bet they could. If you want to remember that, you can watch that old movie, not the new one. The old movie called Spartacus. The one with Kirk Douglas in it that shows the slaves of the time and their uprising. It was a true, of course, a true story about the uprising of the slaves. The Roman saints were well acquainted then with slavery and with the power of the masters of slaves. Especially of slaves taken by military conquest. The power of masters over slaves was a power that's like the power of death. It was akin to death. On the flip side of that coin, the slave's obedience was to be universal. That means they had to do anything you said. And, of course, that in Rome, according to the brute force of Rome and the brutality of Rome, could mean some very terrible abuses. So, it's also interesting that Jesus took on the form of a slave and became obedient universally to the Father to the extent of death by crucifixion. He didn't stop there and say, oh, I won't do that. His obedience to God the Father was universal. That is, complete. And so slavery in Roman masters, or slavery to Roman masters, involved a complete obedience, whether the slave's willingness was in it or not. There's a term called velleity. Velleity is the slightest hint of willingness, the, the smallest part of volition. And that velleity, there, there was, even if you didn't have the slightest inclination to obey that master, you were under the obligation to do so. So lots of times you had to just pretend, obviously, to be willing. 
So whether willingness was there or not, slavery to Jesus Christ is something altogether different. Slavery to Jesus Christ and slavery to righteousness, talked about in Romans 6, is an altogether other thing, even as God is altogether other than we are and not like us at all. Paul's self-declared slavery was a universal willingness. There wasn't any lack of willingness in him. There was, it was a universal willingness on his part to the king, a total and cheerful commitment to the will of the king. So there was something very elevating and dignified about slavery to Jesus Christ because of the elevating, dignified nature of the master who doesn't require servile obedience, but willing obedience. But he does require universal obedience. It's called the obedience of faith, the obedience of faithfulness. And so, as such, the sum total of Paul's body parts, the whole body of Paul, which is ultimately his entire phenomenal existence, was entirely yielded to righteousness. So he calls the church to that. Our lives in Christ are to be actuated by the divine power of the emphasis on Holy Spirit. This is God in us both willing and doing God's pleasure. In other words, we serve, as a police commissioner might say, we, I serve at the pleasure of the mayor. Or he may say, I serve a public official. I serve at, at the pleasure of the people. Well, Paul served at the pleasure of the king, the king of kings, Jesus Christ. Our master is the Lord of lords. For Jesus Christ is Lord over the Roman lords and over all those who are called lords in this world. Lords, Kyrios, or masters in this world. He is Lord of all. We are slaves to the Lord over all other lords. Our Lord, the Lord of lords, slavery to him is liberation. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8 and another passage, there are many persons or institutions that are called gods in this world. But there's only one God, and that's the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. There are many who are called Lord in this world, but there's only one Lord of lords, and that's our Lord Jesus Christ. In Romans 14, 9, in fact, he's the Lord of the living and of the dead. Because he both died and came to life, that he might be Lord over the living and of the dead. The goal of Romans, the epistle then, and this is very pastoral, the, the goal of Romans, the epistle, is to bring about in us a universal willingness to the universal Lord. That universal willingness is the obedience of faith, which is a participation in the fidelity of Jesus Christ himself. Romans is all about a divine deliverance by divine power, by a divine action in Christ Jesus. Bringing about 
a universal willingness and obedience in us by granting us an obediential potency that was in Christ himself. To have the mind of Christ, therefore, is not only to have the Old Testament scriptures emblazoned on our mind and upon the tablets of our hearts. To have the mind of Christ is to be gifted with the same obediential potency that was in him. To be gifted with a universal willingness. The martyrs spoken of in Rev the book, Paul himself became a martyr, as did Peter. The martyrs were gifted with a universal willingness that didn't balk at death, that didn't consider its life in independence from God something to be grabbed a hold of, that didn't count its life dear to itself. The same thing does not, the same obediential potency does not bow to the emotional blackmail of people who heap guilt on you for being a disciple of Jesus Christ. There are more Christians today not fulfilling the universal obedience that is required by God in grace and is only the result of grace because they allow themselves to be blackmailed by emotionally weak people who heap guilt on them. And that guilt itself is an evil. And the heaping of that guilt onto people itself is an evil. This universal willingness, therefore, sometimes means, as Jesus said it, and in the context that he said it, forsaking mother, brothers, sisters, and most of all, your own life also. To be my disciple. If your children or your brothers and your sisters emotionally blackmail you, then you forsake that part of them. You forsake that blackmail by them. You also forsake the bribes of this world. To be universally obedient is to be an unbribed soul. Someone that can't be bribed by the cosmos, by the evil age. That's all extra, I was going to say extraterrestrial preaching, I guess it is. It better be. All preaching should be extraterrestrial. It should be from heaven. So in closing... The obedience of faith is simply the obedience which participates in Jesus Christ's fidelity. Now, back in the days of Rome, slaveholders in the Roman Empire had the power of death, but they could not confer life. It's no big thing. Somebody can kill me. You can kill me. Any, any one of you can kill me. All, it takes a trigger pull. Anybody can kill somebody. But only God can confer life on those that have been killed. <laughs> only God can confer life. Only God can give life. And he is the giver of life to all things. So then, Jesus said, don't fear those who have the power to kill the body. If you're going to fear anybody, 
have the fear or the awesome reverence of God who can confer life and who has the power to destroy body and soul in Gehenna. There's a power that God has that he doesn't exert. Now, only the power of God calls things into being that had no existence before. Romans 4.17 becomes a principal verse in Romans. In the context of the Abraham story, it's, or the Abraham narrative, God is other than all other beings because he has the power to call into being beings that weren't. And that power extends also to raising the dead. Two things about God that you can't say about anybody else or any other being is that God brings into being things that don't exist and beings that don't exist so that they have existence and being. And he raises the dead into life. That's the power of God. That's the power of the Christian life, if you want to call it that. Only God knows what the Christian life is and when it's being lived. We say, well, that person has to be a Christian. Well, why does that person have? Because they always smile. Maybe they're medicated. Overly. So. The one who has this power is able, according to Romans 16, 25, through Paul's gospel. To strengthen us with might in the inner man so that Christ resides in our hearts by faith. Let me say that again. God, the one who has the power, is God, who is able, through Paul's gospel, which is the gospel of God, to strengthen us with might, his kind of power, in the inner man so that Christ resides at home in our hearts. He's at home there, in the center of our being. So that together with all the saints, we may grasp the depth and the height the breadth and the width, the center and the horizon of the love of Christ, which otherwise and by which any by any other power cannot be known. It's the love of Christ that passes knowing because only the power of God can allow you to grasp that love, which cannot be known otherwise by any other power or by any other intellect or by any other means. Romans then begins with power, and it ends with praise to the one who has it. The gospel is God's power for salvation. Another key verse, Romans 1.16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes You say, see, it's only for those who believe. It doesn't say that. It says to everyone who believes, whether Jew or Greek, Gentile. But if we're going to bring the pastorals in, as we must, to interpret Romans, 
First Timothy 4.10 says that he is the savior of all mankind, period. Not exclusively those that believe, but especially those that believe. Why especially those that believe? Because those who are allow, who God has brought about faith in them through the hearing of the gospel in this age are especially saved, we could say, in as much as they have the power to experience the life of the coming age now. So, Romans begins with power and ends with praise to the one who has all the power. The gospel is God's power for salvation. Jesus Christ is that power. Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. The Jews want a miracle. They want a demonstration of power. The Greeks want philosophy. They want a demonstration of supreme intellect. Well, here, in your face, Jews and Gentiles, Jesus Christ, who is the power and the wisdom of God. But not just Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ crucified and risen. There's the power of God. 1 Corinthians 1, really 17 to 24, echoing Tony's message on the word of the cross as a problem solver par excellence. And so... Jesus Christ is, 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 emphasis, the power of God. Rome's power was a power for destruction until opposing countries capitulated. And still Rome held power over the vanquished, the power of death. Rome's power was according to a spirit of unholiness leading to the impurity and idolatry that accompanied the Caesar cult. Caesar is theos, they would say. It started with Augustus, who had his own gospel. Caesar Augustus. Augustus is the son of God. Augustus is theos. Augustus is soter. Augustus is universal savior. Augustus, Caesar, is kurios, Lord. Paul begged to differ. And this this gospel of God, we don't want to use the word today, but we like there's a lot of people that want to aspire to be subversive of corrupt regimes and corrupt authority. Then preach the gospel. It's the most subversive message because it overcomes the true corruption that's in the world through ambition. It Overturned. Rome isn't still with us as an empire. The gospel is. And so Paul's message, he didn't design it to be, nor did he try to be a political subversive, and neither did Jesus. It's quite the opposite. They tried to stay away from any kind of rebellion or subversiveness and even counseled against it. But the message they preached automatically subverted any idolatrous notion of anything else being God, anything else being Lord, anyone else being the focus of adoration and attention of a nation or of a world. 
Rome's power was according then to a spirit of unholiness, which God saw and showed Daniel as being bestial, leading to the impurity and idolatry of the Caesar cult. But God's power is power according to the spirit of holiness, the Holy Spirit leading to the worship of God in spirit and in truth. The emphasis in Romans is on God's power unto life, even as the accent is on God's action in Christ and in the Holy Spirit, unto deliverance and liberation from powers too strong for us. In God's light, we see light. In God's power, we are empowered to the obedience of faith. We thank you for this, Father. We thank you that you've given us, in such a time as this, the opportunity to study Romans, the epistle. We thank you, Father, that the time has never been more appropriate, the harvest never more ripe, the time no more urgent than this time for the proclamation of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery of your great intention, Father, to summarize, to recapitulate by taking over the corrupt, to recapitulate and transform All things in Jesus Christ. This is a message that has the power to convert the atheist. The power to convince the agnostic. The power to save the ungodly. And as we think in our arrogance of the most evil men in history, we fail to recognize that they are merely all of us in exaggeration. And so we recognize our so great salvation, which extends to the most egregious evildoers, as well as to the most refined religionist with his cloak of self-righteousness. We thank you, Father, that you have extended your grace toward us, your kindness toward us in Christ Jesus May we behold, therefore, your severity on sin and on the power of the flesh and even on sin in its unlikely cohort of the law and upon Satan, who will be crushed under our feet shortly. May we see this, Father, as we study Romans together. And may there be a togetherness as we study Romans, not only here but throughout the listening audience in many places. May there be a unity created where you command the blessing of life.